You're listening to Edu Revolution, a podcast that inspires educators to make meaningful change. My name is Michael R. McCormick, and I'm a school district superintendent best known as a technology enthusiast who is dedicated to increasing opportunity and access for each student. I'm sitting down with the movers and shakers who are making waves in the education space through research, practice, and technology integration. Buckle up and be inspired to make changes in your school or district and join the Edu Revolution movement. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. I am so excited to have as our guest today, Ken Kay. And Ken, you and I go back a little bit. And we do. The first thing I wanted to ask you is, I remember somewhere deep in my memory banks, I heard you tell a story that you used to actually be a lobbyist and an attorney working in Washington, D.C., Mm-hmm. And that work ultimately led to the inspiration of the 21st century education movement. So give us a little history lesson here. So I, I actually went to law school um, in Colorado to do public policy, uh, came to Washington and started working on public policy. Um, um, and... Uh, but was mostly worked on the Judiciary Committee in the in the Senate, and actually worked on the on the nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor. So that will date me. And um, uh, and then um, I went downtown and started representing the high tech industries on research and development and the research and development tax credit. And then about five minutes, five years in, uh, the computer industry approached me and said. You know, we've been watching you run this other coalition, and we have a group of CEOs in the hardware industry that it wants to form a group to advocate on technology and trade issues. So I represented both of those groups for a while, but it was the computer industry group, which had CEOs from all the computer industries. That's how I really learned uh, the tech industry was through the involvement in that CEO group. By the by the mid, actually, I should say by after Clinton got elected, Clinton and Gore uh, formed something called the NII Advisory Council, the National Information Infrastructure Advisory Council. And that's the term we used before we used the term internet. So this was really an internet policy council before the inter- term internet was used. And one of the recommendations of that group that that I, that I staffed for one of the CEOs um, was to connect schools and libraries to the internet. Um, And as a result of that, one of the CEOs came to me and said, look, that project's made its recommendations, but we want to really work on what could the tech industry do to support, this is like 1996, what could the tech industry do to better support schools trying to connect to to technology? And so we created a a small project called the CEO Forum on Education and Technology and created something called the STAR chart, which was an attempt to give a a self-assessment tool on how you were doing with all the various things that you needed to do to effectively use technology. And we were afraid at the time that schools would just think, you know, we're connected and didn't realize they needed professional development and they needed other things to actually make that connectivity worth anything. Um, And what we found as we did that advocacy, and this is really getting to your question, which was it's important to my evolution. 
was that we were really frustrated that the superintendents we met with and other people in the K through 12 sector um, really didn't see it as an opportunity to start to transform education, but basically would tell us, oh, we'll go talk to our tech director. They know everything about technology. Um, and so we shut that project down in about five years later, 2001. And one of the people um, in the group who was working for Dell turned to me and said, you know, I really know what you need to work on next. And I said, what's that? They said, well, we need you to start thinking about what competencies young people need to be successful in the new global economy. And let's form a group to advocate for those competencies in K through 12 education. And that's what gave life to the Partnership for 21st Century Skills, which formed in 2002. That is amazing. You know, I got to tell you, interesting story. I'm with a district and folklore is that we were probably the first or at least among the very first school districts on the internet in the state of California back in 1994. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually got the attention of George Lucas and MIT who did a full length documentary on the school district and the power of being connected to, at the time they were calling it the World Wide Web, the so-called yes, right, internet. Exactly. Yes. And um, it's amazing because one of the teachers who was featured in that documentary with George Lucas still works in the district. And, a different George Lucas. And, and so, no, it was the, the real George Lucas of Star Wars fame, and it was the teacher that was highlighted uh, in that documentary, still works for, for the district today. And he was talking about, you know, just the power of connecting students and teachers and the idea that we could actually connect with people in other states and other countries, and our kids could learn about one another and learn together. And it's just, boy, what a, what an amazing uh, kind of thing that, you know, he was talking about the power of communication and collaboration. It sounds like that's exactly what your group was trying to forward um, those years ago. Yeah, I, I think that we didn't start talking about the power of communication, collaboration, and creativity until 2002. I think what we were doing in the 90s was just letting people know of the potential of this connectivity and the potential of the network. Um, but we we didn't, you see, here's what I'd say, we, we, we didn't really tie the, uh, for another decade, the need to really transform the system. So what we were talking about, and most people thought, is we were just gonna take the system as it was and make it better. And now we realize in retrospect, we actually had to change the system because the system itself needed fundamental changes. And to take advantage of the real potential of all this um, is not to take the system as it was, but to, um, to change system, change pedagogy um, dramatically. Um, and so we didn't start that effort, I don't think, until early 2000s, probably. Yeah, that's that's really amazing. You know, I had a you're, you're reminding me. I, I had a I had the amazing opportunity to have a conversation with uh, Steve Wozniak, mm. 
And um, one of the things he talked about in our conversation was that, you know, one of the limitations of the human condition is we can only see so far into the future. Because he was asked the question, you know, well, did you have any idea what the power of the personal computer would be when you invented it? And he said, you know, absolutely not. And it, and it sounds like there's a parallel here that, you know, all of a sudden there's this technology that doesn't even have the name Internet just yet. And uh, initially it's like, okay, what do we do with this? How do we get it out there? And then, as you said, later on in 2002, you started thinking about, well, what's, what are the teaching strategies? What's the pedagogy? And what are the implications for the uses of this technology? And so you were let me let me tell you let me digress with a fun story from 19 I think it was 93 94 uh, a friend of mine at the National Research Council had watched uh, the computer industry CEOs starting to advocate supercomputing and he said to me you know you need to know more about supercomputing and I am going to take you on a field trip I'm organizing to the supercomputing center at the University of Illinois. And he showed us what they were doing there, what supercomputing looked like. Some of my companies were involved in that, but I didn't fully appreciate what that was or how to tell that story. And the next day he says to us, well, tomorrow morning before you leave for the airport, I've invited two or three of my undergraduate seniors who are doing interesting work to come meet with you before you go to the airport. And this guy comes out And he goes, um, I'm working on a research project here, which right now, if you want to connect on this World Wide Web, you've got to know all these numbers and you got to keep putting the numbers in. And it makes it very, very uh, cumbersome. And I'm working on a project which which will translate uh, all of that into clicks of a mouse so that you can actually navigate everything you navigate with the click of a mouse. That was Mark Andreessen as an undergraduate senior at the University of Illinois. Unbelievable. Yeah. Man, oh, man. So, so, th- so that, was, uh, that was where we were, you know, 20 years ago. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to believe, right? No, that's almost 27 years ago. It's hard to believe he, he had just figured out how to turn all of those numbers into clicks. And by the way, those of us in the room at that moment knew once he said that, that it was a whole new ball game because what was going to do is take the technology from the province of scientists into the province of the rest of us who did, wouldn't have to, couldn't bother with all the algorithms and um, would be able to do things just by clicking. And that's, that's the first notion I had at the, how pervasive that technology was really going to become. Unbelievable. You know, it's what a fantastic story. And so kind of, you know, the next transition point, I think you talked a little bit about the creation of the Partnership for 21st Century Learning and the development of the four C's, but give us a little bit more detail on that. Well, the, the, the one thing I should say is, is that um, this was the sort of the beginning of the uh, Bush administration, but, but, uh, of W's administration. And... Um, uh, we we knew we wanted to begin to f- 
fulfill that su suggestion I'd heard from Dell, which is how do we try to describe the competencies young people need? And we went to the Department of Education and told them the project we were going to work on. And they said to us, we'll do a, 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 a if you can raise money from education groups and the private sector, we'll match it for a I, I don't remember yet then yet whether it was a two or three year grant they gave us. And um, so that's how, how we launched. The interesting thing about it, though, was we were doing all of that work at a time that No Child Left Behind was launching. A number of people said to us, why are you forming this group at a time when NCLB is just getting off the ground? And you know, this is the one thing that, you know, you, there are moments where you can prognosticate about out about 20 years. And I, we said to people, and I said to people, look, there's nothing wrong with accountability. The idea of pressing accountability in education makes sense. The problem is, is that in the current mode, NCLB is just going to start holding people accountable for the metrics that are lying around, the metrics that have been around for 50 years. What we're trying to do with the Partnership for 21st Century Skills is figure out what are the metrics that really matter for young people now, not what, what not looking in a rearview mirror. And so we pressed on in the face of every most other people paying attention to No Child Left Behind saying, eventually you're going to be interested in our work because it will become abundantly clear that the old metrics are looking in a rear view mirror. And what we're trying to do is to create the metrics that matter now and down the road. So that was a seminal moment. And, you know, as, as a leader, you got to sort of be have a tough enough backbone to say, yeah, I know the country's focused on NCLB, but this work is still very important. And we've got to continue with it because these are the metrics that matter more than the metrics they're measuring. And that, that minor observation uh, proved to be very important and kept us going. And, um, and uh, so what we did was we created what was known, some people know as the rainbow, which was a way of describing all the cluster of competencies beyond including content mastery, but beyond content mastery, what are the other buckets of things kids need to be able to do? And in that uh, diagram, in that rainbow, we had probably 18 skills. And everybody thought we, we, um, we were onto something, but 18, you know, my daughter, who's now in communications um, at Airbnb, taught me a, a while back, she said, People don't remember 18 of anything, Dad. You got to get this down to a few. <laughs> right. So I love that. So we right. So we decided that we needed to. We ended up doing some focus groups, and our uh, uh, pollster said to us, "You know, you need to get this down to just a few." And th the interest seems to be aggregating around communications, collaboration, critical thinking, and creativity, and and that's where the most interest is. And maybe maybe you guys should consider taking the, those four C's and running with them. And so that was an important part of, of the evolution, which is 
Uh, we then realized, and I would say, I don't know, 2008, 2009, that we realized that the four C's was a much better, people heard the four C's, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity, and they went, oh, we get what, we get it now. We know, we didn't understand exactly what you meant. If that's what you meant, we understand what you're saying. So that was a significant contribution because getting people, even the NCLB people, to focus more on critical thinking and communication, uh, they didn't focus so much on collaboration and creativity, but to get them even to focus more on communication and critical thinking was a good thing. Um, uh, and so that's sort of where, where we were, uh, just sort of launching the four C's, um, uh, in, in the 2008, 2009 timeframe. I love hearing about this and, and this is meant with love, Ken. I, I just, I want you to know, I think of you as the grandfather of the four C's. And I, I understand that there was probably a coalition of people that were very instrumental in that work, but somebody had to be leading that work. And by my way of thinking, that was you that was re really leading that work. And uh, boy, talk, like you said yourself, you know, what an amazing contribution to education to, to be a part of something that's been so instrumental. And I think, you know, here's the thing. Uh, this is something that I see continuing to gain steam and gain momentum as we move out of this global pandemic and think about reopening the schools of the future now, because we've had such turmoil in education as we've navigated, you know, what does virtual or distance education look like? And so that's kind of served to unseat you know, the teachers and the support staff and the administrators give us a chance to try some new things because we didn't have another choice and then see how we can protect those innovations moving forward. At least, what's your thoughts on that? Well, uh, well, two things. First of all, I want to go back a step, which is, you know, as a leader, uh, never a good idea to not fully embrace and acknowledge the cluster of people that um, that made this possible. And my work, going back to even my, my work uh, since I left Capitol Hill was about coalition building, building coalitions of companies, coalitions of universities, uh, coalitions of lots of different things. And um, so I really do think that it wouldn't have been possible to do those things without all the participants who agreed to come together to support them. So uh, the, the Partnership for 21st Century Skills at its height probably had 35 or 40 great organizations and great companies uh, advocating that work. And I, I didn't want to short shift. And we'll, we'll talk about Valerie Greenhill in a minute in particular, but she's one of the real heroines of this story too. So there were lots and lots of different um, uh, people who contributed to the success. I, I just wanted to accentuate that. So uh, I, I guess what I what I would say to you is um, I'll, I'll get to the to the pandemic in a minute because I agree with what you said. But there there's another uh, moment of of shift, which is that particularly for somebody that came out of Washington D.C. 
and watching um, uh, and, 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 and having my law career and my early lobbying focused on federal intervention, federal legislation. Um, the problem with the four C's was that people thought that we were imposing it or that they had to follow something that um, that that somebody else had invented. And so in a way, the four C's was a top-down strategy, which was here are the things you should really be focused on. And the shift began, an important shift began um, in recognizing that in a way, the four C's was arbitrary and maybe even a little bit too narrow and not empowering. Um, and so the other shift that occurs after the four C's, which may even be more important than the four C's, is the shift to recognizing that local communities had to have a major hand in developing the final set of competencies that would really matter. And for particularly given from where I came from, that was a big shift to say, you know, we're now moving from trying to get the federal government and state governments to adopt the four C's, which I spent a lot of time working on, to saying, actually, the power in this is going to be local communities coming up with their own version of the four C's. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so kind of the next step is you've got this parallel evolution happening between the creation of Ed Leader 21 and thinking about ways to broaden the definition of student success by assessing the four C's. And at the same time, you partner with Valerie Greenhill, previously mentioned, and you co-author The Leader's Guide to 21st Century Education. So kind of take us through what happens here. Yeah. So we we were we were we we had developed the four C's at the Partnership for 21st Century Skills. Superintendents around the country kept coming to us and saying, well, you know, we're not really at the table. Um, you're working with companies, you're working with education groups like the NEA and AASA and NSBA, the National School Boards, the Association of School Administrators, but we're not really at the table here. And so we started talking to them about whether they were interested in having us put together a notion of a professional learning community of superintendents and their leadership teams to try and uh, move the four, the four C's and uh, 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 work forward. And um, there were, there were initially about, we did focus groups around the country, uh, Virginia, Boston, um, and uh, I, I can't remember where the West Coast, must have been California. And, um, and we probably did focus groups with 30 people, 30 superintendents, and 20 of them said, if you form this professional learning community, superintendents will join. So we took the original 20, I mean, now in hindsight, we can say we grew it to 200 over time. And, uh, and the premise of that was that local school superintendents and their leadership teams would work together to try to implement um, the four C's collaboratively. And um, Valerie Greenhill and I 
uh, you know, at, at the when I, when we started that group, um, Valerie Greenhill, Allison Nielsen, and I uh, were were uh, running the partnership from Tucson, and we began to run Ed Leader Twenty One out of Tucson and started to uh, to grow. I think it we started in January of 2011, and later that year, I believe, or maybe the next year, we started working on the book you mentioned, The Leader's Guide to 21st Century Education, which was really an attempt to marry the four C's and a theory of change for school districts to give them suggestions on how you make the shift uh, from uh, a, a, a system focused on content mastery and memorization to a system focused on critical thinking, communication, collaboration, and creativity. So that was the big shift. And that, and that book was actually, I think, helped establish some credibility for uh, the change. And we met a lot of new districts through the book who ended up joining, uh, joining the network. So we uh, kept adding to the network. We grew it, um, you know, slowly. Uh, uh, 20, 30, 40 new members a year uh, until it reached its peak uh, uh, of 200. The key, I think, became uh, this idea that we recognized after the book came out that we needed to start focusing on uh, creating a, a, uh, some local conversations with school districts. Some, super, some of our superintendents came to us and said, you know, we want to have local conversations about the four C's. And maybe um, we'll adopt the four C's, but maybe we'll alter them. And so we started facilitating a few of those conversations. We watched districts have those conversations. And uh, slowly but surely, um, there some real momentum got created for, for what we initially were calling, uh, it's now called the portrait of a graduate, but for districts to create their own portrait of a graduate. And um, uh, that was um, that was an important shift in, in our strategy. Uh, one big, one great story in all this that I, I mentioned I would tell is that Valerie Greenhill went to a conference um, sponsored by the Heath brothers on how to make shifts in strategy, and she was the one who came back and said, "You know." We're doing. We're watching these portraits of a graduate, but it really is the unit of change. We need to be out there now, really creating momentum for this portrait of a graduate because that's what we've got to be uh, promoting. So we created a website, portraitofagraduate.org, that still exists and showcases the portrait of a graduate work. Uh, but it was Rat Valerie who really suggested, you know, we really got to scale this thing. Um, the portrait of a graduate. And I think that the movement has really, really got its full momentum when we shifted to the portrait of a graduate strategy, because then districts didn't feel we were telling them what to do. They were saying, okay, we can create whatever portrait of a graduate we want. Now, 80% of the districts use the four C's inside their portrait of a graduate, but they've added wonderful attributes. They've added um, citizenship. They've added contribution. They've added, you know, lots of uh, um, lots of different uh, uh, self direction. Um, 
some of which have C's and some of which don't. Uh, but the point is that the local districts have now started to own their own creation of a North Star for their district. Yeah, and I can and I can speak to that. <clears throat> Just saying that, you know, when I met you, Ken, I I think I literally said, "Where have you been all my life?" Because I had been kind of trying to manage, you know, all of these initiatives and tie them together in a way that made sense. You know, one of the challenges I've always had is I, I think about these ideas and it makes perfect sense in my brain, but having a way to kind of express that uh, either in words or in illustrations that makes sense for other people that can kind of give them a graphic representation of how these initiatives actually interconnect and intertwine with one another to, to really support a community's vision for what they want their students to leave their district knowing in terms of skills and, and attributes and dispositions. And uh, to me, there's, there's nothing more unifying uh, than taking a community through this process of visioning and creating a portrait of a graduate because you get the business community involved, you get the local community involved, certainly your families and your students and your staff and you all make these agreements. And the beauty of this, and I, I completely agree that this was likely a huge turning point for the, for the larger movement, is it's no longer top-down. Now it's yep. this kind of grassroots coalition-building effort where there's agency in what's being produced. And so there's a lot more ownership over what's happening. It feels a lot more like responsibility than accountability, which is a huge shift in narrative around this work. And so I can say I'm eternally grateful to, you know, the work that was uh, created by you and Valerie and, and Allison and, and many others who, we're kind of, you know, we stand on the shoulders of those that came before us. And, um, you know, I tell people all the time, look, if you're, if you're trying to create a crystal clear picture for what it is you want your kids to leave your district with after 13 years of education, this is a great mechanism uh, to implement this North Star for your district. And a lot of people asked, you know, when the global pandemic hit, you know, what are you thinking? What are you going to do differently? And for us, the answer was, we're going to stick to our North Star. And we're going to stay focused on, on that and, and find a way to, uh, to move ahead for our kids. And so I really appreciate that. And I know you, you talked a little bit about this. Uh, I've heard you talk about this in the past. And just you know, the power of language, whereas, you know, one district, I think, as the story goes, says, you know, we wanted to have citizenship. And then you went to another district and they said, you know, citizenship has a negative connotation around here. We would never use that, but we like the idea of a global citizen that works in our community, you know, and, and just allowing people the discretion to use the language in the development process that makes sense for them. It's, it's the local context matters. 
It, it really does. And, you know, I'm a complete convert now to, I, you know, I don't know what I was doing on all my top-down work for all those years. But, uh, you know, it, I, 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 I want to say it this way. I, I, I spent a lot of time with the Partnership for 21st Century Stills, Skills trying to get federal and state government to set the right policy. And the incentives for federal and state policy member, uh, uh, policymakers to get education right are very minimal. Um, they grandstand. They put accountability measures in place uh, that, that don't make sense for kids. And I, I ultimately decided that the transformation I was interested in wasn't going to happen that way. And what I have found, and I, I want to turn the, return the compliment to you, is that the best hope for this country in terms of, of the future of education are school superintendents and school leaders like you and like your leadership team, particularly in Val Verde, but you and I've met like-minded superintendents and leadership teams around the country who have the vision and the, and the, and the, the, um, uh, to step out and say the old accountability mess, uh, methods aren't only not working, they're hurting our kids. And we, as a local government, as local school board, as local superintendents have to have the courage to stand up and say, even if my state capital can't get this right, we got to do what's right by kids. And so now we have an interesting situation where we have a lot of school districts, hundreds of school districts around the country that have created a vision for the future of education. And in some cases that flies in, in the face of state policy, but those superintendents and those school boards have said, it's more important for us to do what's right by kids. Um, we obviously have to follow state law and we'll do what the state law is, but that's not good enough for the future of our kids. And I, that has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life is to work with local school superintendents, who I think are among our very best public servants, um, and help and, and try to provide some support to them, um, but to watch them and let them lead us in, in trying to determine the best way to change education. So I think the future of education really lies with the very best superintendents and leaders out in the districts that have had the, uh, the backbone to step up and say, we've got to create the future of education at the local level and not stand around and wait for federal and state policymakers to get it right because we, we just our kids just can't afford to wait that long. Well, thank you, Ken. I appreciate that. And you know, the, the work, you bring up a good point. It does take courage, and there's an inherent tension in the system between compliance and innovation. And um, it takes a certain level of tenacity to say, absolutely, we're going to be good soldier, soldiers, so to speak, and we're going to do the compliance and accountability pieces that we need to do. But we also feel a tremendous sense of responsibility to prepare students for their future. And we hear time and time again the needs of the business community and the skills and dispositions that they're searching for and how difficult it is for them to you know, find qualified workers, particularly in the STEM fields. And so it seems like the four C's and the portrait of a graduate really do lend themselves 
um, not only as communication tools, but as that North Star that guides the system in, in that direction. And so with that, what's next for Ken K? Well, I, I actually am, am very excited. I have one more, at least one more project in this, in this area on the horizon. Um, and that is that uh, some people who are listening know Susie Voss, who's a very accomplished writer and consultant and facilitator in the project-based learning area. And um, I approached her about whether uh, she would um, co-author a book with me. And so we are very excited. Um, we have a book coming out at the end of July. Um, I should say, now, now it makes good sense to... Uh, to comment on the pandemic. We started our, our interview process this past June. We interviewed 250 people um, in June, July, and August mostly, and then wrote the book in uh, September, October, and November. And we're now in the final stages of editing it. And it's going to be coming out from Corwin at the end of July. And uh, uh, it's called Redefining Student Success building a new vision for leading, teaching, and learning. And um, uh, I guess the one comment I will make is that when we, when we first came up with the idea for the book, the pandemic hadn't hit yet. And so then we find ourselves doing all these interviews in the middle of the pandemic. And I wanted to support a comment you made earlier about the pandemic, which is um, the district's that are open to innovation and open to experimentation and have what we call a green light culture actually did well during the pandemic. And we tell stories in the book of the culture you need to implement your portrait of a graduate is a culture that is very conducive to handling crises and being flexible. Um, and as you say, you know, as states shut down their testing uh, because of the pandemic, a lot of the districts that had a portrait of the graduate were sitting there going, well, we know exactly what we're going to be doing in lieu of the testing. We have our, con our components of a portrait of a graduate, um, and that's what we're going to be focused on. Um, in fact, I know one district last summer that did a portrait of a graduate summer camp for their district. Uh, around the competencies in their portrait of a graduate. And so um, so I, I, I do think that the lesson from interviews that we did for the book and the and lessons from writing the book really support your notion that a strong vision about the future is actually a, a North Star and maybe even a rudder during tough times by, like the pandemic because those districts that didn't have a North Star and were still content and, and memorization focused uh, didn't have a place to migrate to, but the districts that had taken the time to figure out where should education be in five or 10 years were on that journey and they could use the pandemic to continue that journey and reinforce it. I couldn't have said it better, Ken. That was fantastic. And I wanna be the first one to invite you and Susie back to the podcast and okay. uh, once this once this book gets released 
Uh, I'd love to set a date and get that blocked off in your calendars so we can have you back on and talk about the new book and love to dive into that with you and, and learn about the experiences that you all wrote about. Uh, so I'm so looking forward to that. And uh, we, w- we would love to do that. Oh, fantastic. And I think I'll just end it here with, you know, I, I kind of started this a couple of episodes ago. Uh, what's, what's at the top of your gratitude list, Ken? Well, at the, I, 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 two, two things come, come to mind. Um, one is my family, my wife and my kids who have, uh, uh, been so supportive of this sort of journey I've been on that in prior to the pandemic kept me on the road for years trying to build the, build the conversation. Um, but I'm also incredibly grateful as a recovering attorney that didn't know anything about K through 12 education, um, at the age of 45, uh, was very first intro other than my own education, high school education. Um, I have been so blessed, uh, with people in the sector and superintendents who, um, saw the value of coalition building, who saw the value of, of some of the future scenario planning that we were doing, but were patient enough with me and actually committed enough to the work that they took the time to really help me understand the sector. There was a time when when we 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 wrote uh, one of the first reports, I think, uh, of the CEO Forum on Education and Technology, uh, and a number of people. The chair of the, at the time was Terry Crane. Um, and uh, who's still a dear friend. And she said to me, Ken, we're going to write this report on professional development. And I said, Terry, I don't really know what prof- I know what professional development is in, in, in the law, but I don't know what it is in K through 12. She said, well, I'm going to assign you one of my people and they're going to spend the next six months educating you on professional development. So I, I have I, I, I'm a case of somebody who. Uh, was willing to learn, but I really needed to have a, a bunch of stewards in the K through 12 field. Um, I don't, the, the term is not take pity on me, but uh, <laughs> invest in me, right. invest in me, and 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 teach me. And um, so I'm incredibly grateful for that because that's the only way I could have built up uh, the amount of uh, information we needed to really make a cogent case and. And I'm just glad, you know, I look back at my career and now I have this wonderful home in K through 12 education where I love the colleagues I'm working with. And I feel like, um, you know, I was I was meant to end up migrating to the field. And so I'm very grateful to the degree uh, that the field embraced me and and educated me and, and was as tolerant of me as they've been. So that's a major gratitude. That is wonderful. What what an amazing journey you've had. And uh, I tell you, Ken, it's it's been such an honor to have you as a guest on the show today. I want to thank you for investing some time with me and sharing your knowledge and your stories and your inspirations. Uh, it's been a great show. So thanks so much, Ken. And we look forward to seeing you in August to talk about the new Fabulous. book. We'll be back. Really looking forward to it. Thank, thanks, Mike. This was great. 
Thank you for listening today. I hope you feel inspired to be the change our students need. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can connect with me on Twitter at Mike underscore McCormick2 and Instagram at Michael R. McCormick. And hop on over to the EduRevolutionPodcast.com website for free resources that support your next change initiative.